Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Radio 1190's News Underground. Um, The news stories of Boulder, Colorado, and beyond. Today on News Underground, we have um, Dr. Donna Goldstein, who is a professor here at CU um, in anthropology. She is the author of Laughter Out of Place, Race, Class, Violence, and Sexuality in a Rio Shanty Town, and recipient of the 2004 Margaret Mead Award for that work. She writes in the fields of medical anthropology, anthropology of the environment, and science and technology studies, and has written about the pharmaceutical politics and about the election and racial politics of President Donald Trump. Her work is mainly in Brazil, and she's currently working on a research project that examines the history of Cold War science and nuclear energy in Brazil. Her most recent work is an edited collection of articles with Kristen Dybred on corruption in Latin America. And Dr. Donna Goldstein is here to speak with us about the Bolsonaro government and their reaction to the wildfires. Dr. Goldstein, do you mind introducing yourself? Uh, No, not at all. Um, Thanks so much for inviting me, Clara. It's really um, very nice to be here and uh, trying a new venue for communicating with CU's wonderful student body. Um, I'm a medical anthropologist and a cultural anthropologist here at CU, and um, as Clara mentioned, um, I'm working on a range of issues um, that touch on uh, climate change, science, technology, and society, pharmaceuticalization, um, but uh, most intensely a project about the history of Brazil's nuclear ambitions around um, developing the nuclear energy industry, um, something they've been doing since the 1960s and also during uh, their military regime, that has uh, led them on an interesting path Um, that connects up with what's going on in the Amazon and what's going on with fires because um, as with every country and with every large um, economic power, uh, they're all trying to figure out how to rearrange their economy and their uh, work in the energy sector uh, for the future. And um, the Bolsonaro government uh, has a very different approach from the last uh, decade, uh, decade and a half of uh, Brazil's democratic governments. So for those unfamiliar with the Bolsonaro government, um, can you describe their general policies and how they came to come in or how they came into power? Sure. Um, the first uh, thing that one could say, and this could mean lots of things to different people, but uh, Bolsonaro is often known as the Trump of Brazil. And by that, it feels as if the Bolsonaro government is a radical break. Uh, This is for a number of reasons. Um, The most important being that um, his presidency is the result of a 2016 um, coup d'etat, some would say, uh, impeachment of the Workers' Party candidate from office, uh, President Dilma Rousseff. And... um, and all of the things that have happened since 2016, which was an interim government that um, had brought corruption uh, allegations against President Rousseff and the country, similar to the United States, is very divided along a number of different lines, rich and poor, class lines, party lines. 
Um, corruption added another fissure in the uh, question around democratic governance, and in some ways, uh, that break between uh, different parties, it's a parliamentary system that has multi-parties, and each party stands for a very different platform. But the, the, the problem uh, in Brazil with corruption and the what for many of us uh, was an illegal impeachment of President Rousseff uh, paved the way for Bolsonaro to uh, run for president in the first place and then to actually win the presidency. And um, his history was somebody that, again, nobody thought could win, very similar to Donald Trump, uh, somebody who was a army ex-army captain uh, with very, very, very right-wing politics, um, and nobody thought it would be possible because people had definitively uh, celebrated the return to democracy in 89 and since then. And so this was really a radical break once again for Brazil and a very sad one because the government, uh, similar to Trump trying to undo many of Obama's more progressive policies, has been trying to roll back um, what Brazil had indeed accomplished during uh, Lula's two terms and uh, Rousseff's uh, time in office. So when we're discussing the Amazon fires, what comes into play is environmentalism and um, the way governments think of and think they should the environment should be treated or protected. Um, can you speak on that with Bolsonaro at all? Yes, um, Bolsonaro, very similar, again, to Donald Trump, um, has basically uh, defanged all of the environmental legislation that Brazil had worked so hard in the last decade and more to put into place. Um, he basically took away power from IBAMA, the Natural Resources Institute in Brazil. He uh, transferred power from kind of um, human rights that would have, for example, uh, come into play in the Amazon in protecting indigenous uh, people's rights and uh, change the ministry that would take care of that. He took power away from the environmental um, ministry. Um, he replaced it, uh, replaced all the people in his ministry with uh, people that are uh, fans of his. And uh, like most neoliberal uh leaders in the U.S. and in the global south, um, they have gone forward with a very strongly neoliberalizing kind of program that basically deregulates everything, including uh, environmental regulation, human rights, uh, protection of uh, wildlife, um, endangered species of all kinds, um, rights made for GLBTQ groups, um, all kinds of uh, rights related to workers. Um, and so it's been a rollback of a progressive era in Brazil. And, um, you know, while the Workers' Party was by no means a perfect governing uh, force, just like Obama was not a perfect governing force, this is just a radical turn to the right. And so the fires in the Amazon really 
uh, occurred for a number of reasons, but some of the explanation has to do with the fact that um, Bolsonaro had really spoken uh, very obviously and openly about the need to protect the Amazon as a national security issue, uh, to roll back indigenous rights, that is, that uh, there is a fear among military people and among Bolsonaro. It may not be a real fear, but a fear that they think is useful to pander to the public that, for example, indigenous groups would be creating their own state in the Amazon. Um, another fear that's been created is that it would be divided up um, and, and Brazil would lose control of it. For example, there, Brazil has many borders uh, in the Amazon region and in some of the other countries there have been in, an influx of uh, Chinese investment in those areas for infrastructure, and, uh, for example, in Suriname, there's a lot of Chinese investment in business things. So the government, while very right-wing and very pro-business, is also very nationalist and very pro-Brazilian business, and then uses this kind of xenophobic language to um, unify people against um, anything that's seen as foreign, and very similar to seeing Mexico as a foreign and problematic neighbor, um, Bolsonaro has not hesitated to see indigenous groups as foreign and not speaking the language of Brazil and to see Chinese investors when it behooves him uh, to see them as the enemy, um, to see the U.S. who um, really supported his candidacy as possibly harboring the need for invasion. So the fear-mongering in Brazil is also similarly, similarly schizophrenic in that when it is useful to get the support of our own uh, very troubled government at this time, I think they will take that. But when it's not, they uh, actually then depict all European and U.S. Uh, government attempts to uh, offer help in the Amazon as something that's colonial and imperial and that is getting in the way of Brazilian sovereignty. My next question was going to be off of that, which was um, after being offered $22 million in financial aid by French President um, Macron, President Bolsonaro called it imperialism. Do you think that has any ring of truth to it? Um, I know when we're talking about Latin America, the roots of colonialism is a theme we see everywhere. Sure. I think um, I would perhaps, and I think many people would feel this way as well, I would feel much more open to this idea of um, th that this would be a colonial or an imperial ambition. Um, the Amazon is certainly a world-class um, natural resource. And of course, uh, Brazil, under any government, uh, wants to care for that area. But, um, and so one could imagine that uh, the history of Brazil is very much tied up with the colonial past and with, um, you know, the way that the global economy has been made to, um, you know, make agricultural goods suffer in the face of industrial goods and all of the things that we know about how global economies are created. But in this case, um, I think Bolsonaro is really just 
using uh, the phrasing of colonialism in order to kind of confuse the issue here. In this case, um, the European Union, for example, really wanted to step in and offer help both with the fires and with um, the preservation in terms of paying uh, Brazil, which is kind of controversial, to, um, to set aside areas that could not be touched. This has always been a touchy issue in Brazil, no matter what the government, but there has never been a government that has been so um, disloyal and degrading to the environment and to wildlife. And um, really, it's kind of, uh, in, in a negative way, stunning what's going on there. But he's also very good, similar to our own situation, of confusing the public with this discourse. So a discourse of colonialism or imperialism, either one would be trying to gather support from both left-wing and right-wing forces. But um, most people at this point, I think, are not confused or um, fooled by that kind of rhetoric. So in the introduction, you mentioned this briefly. Um, your work currently is about uh, the history of the Cold War in Brazil has environmental environmental factors and the current administration's uh, stance on environment played into that at all? Yes, very much so. Um, Brazil has a very small nuclear energy program, but it's very interesting at this time in history to look at it, especially because um, on a daily basis we know that uh, Iran's nuclear program is at the center of foreign policy and is, um, you know, the entire uh, agreements that were made to postpone um, Iran's uh, obtaining uh, nuclear power has come into play. Brazil had uh, started its nuclear program during the Atoms for Peace program in the late 1960s. And so it was able to take advantage of that time where countries were offered the ability to boost their uh, investment and their technological know-how in nuclear energy by uh, being able to uh, have nuclear energy plants. So Brazil has one site, uh, and it sits between the cities of Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, and it is has two functioning uh, nuclear energy uh, power plants on it, and a third has been being built. Uh, there's many things to say about the plants, They, uh, but the most important thing perhaps is that they are getting old, they are aging out, and um, they have a lot in common with um, the Fukushima plants that uh, you know didn't do so well during the tsunami. And... Um, also, there is uh, worry that because of Brazil's general level of infrastructure, that having nuclear energy and the possibility always that we all live with of a possible accident, that this would be a problem. Now, these nuclear plants are in the other Amazon of Brazil, known as the Mata Atlantica, or the Atlantic Forest Region of Brazil. So they were placed exactly in an indigenous uh, reserve uh, surrounded by beautiful, thick, um, uh, tropical rainforest. 
and um, a lot of diversity is there just as it is in the Amazon. So n nevertheless, on top of all of that, um, it happens to be between two of Brazil's major powerhouse cities. And so if there were an accident, um, the uh, effects of that would be perhaps felt in uh, Rio de Janeiro and in Sao Paulo. But there's connections to all of uh, what's going on now because those plants were also built during the Cold War. And, um, and the military uh, basically was in control of Brazil during this Cold War time. And so um, they had complete control of the site and could do uh, what they wanted to do. And in some ways, this uh, Brazilian president is a return to some of the desires of the Cold War military ambitions that took over uh, between 1964 and 1985 in Brazil, which was a very developmentalist kind of mentality. Brazil needs to move forward, and the only way to do that is to really develop in a very particular industrializing way. And, um, and the heck with um, what might happen to the environment um, with very little regulation. Um, so there's a lot of common uh, mentality between the 1960s that set up the nuclear program in Brazil and the present moment, which um, if you blast forward many years, Brazil, while it has these two nuclear plants, it, as far as anyone knows, there's not a um, nuclear, um, you know, bomb potential in Brazil, though they're just like any other country who has nuclear energy, they are a few steps away from it. But Brazil did move forward very aggressively and has a nuclear submarine that they are very proud of and that the military is quite proud of. Um, so there are many, uh, many angles to kind of using the nuclear energy program as a lens to understand the present system. What were the ambitions of the military people then? What was the uh, role of both technological progress, and I put that you know, between quotes, scare quotes, um, and the idea that Brazil should take a certain path into the future. And um, in some ways, Bolsonaro is uh, continuing from that strand that Brazil had given up when it definitively moved uh, toward democratic governance in the late 80s and early 90s. Very interesting. Thank you for joining us tonight, Dr. Goldstein. As a recap, we spoke with Dr. Donna Goldstein, a professor of anthropology here at the University of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Take good care. So that was Dr. Donna Goldstein. Next up, we have Alexander Jensen. He is a doctorate candidate here at CU, and he came into the studio to talk with us about the impact of grassroots campaigns. And he's setting us up for an interview that we have right after, um, and it is with a grassroots candidate in Denver. So um, right up is Alexander Jensen. Um, and he is here to speak with us about grassroots campaigns and their impact on American politics. 
Um, Alex, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me here. Um, I'm a second year in the graduate program um, here at CU. My research interests uh, revolve around American government and politics. I'm a political behaviorist, so the work that I do involves taking a deeper look at the attitudes that Americans hold and the ways in which those attitudes are turned into actions in the political arena. Um, I'm particularly interested in how people interact with political parties and the nature of partisanship. Great. Um, so what, so do you mind telling us um, just what a grassroots campaign is and what makes it different from other forms that we might be more familiar with? Yeah, so grassroots campaigns or movements are driven by everyday Americans. Um, where people usually think of campaigns as driven by wealthy donors and people with specialized political knowledge, grassroots organizers and campaigns want to build their base with constituents and citizens who are actually affected um, by these particular issues. And you, you mentioned that you have some of your uh, experience in grassroots campaigns. Do you mind yeah. telling um, our audience what that is? Yeah, when I was younger, um, actually, well, when I was born, uh, myself and my younger sibling, uh, we were both diagnosed with this rare genetic disorder called common variable immune deficiency. So um, through the Immune Deficiency Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that works to um, put families and people who are affected by um, CVID and other rare diseases uh, that are in that primary immunodeficiency spectrum um, into contact with each other and then also to uh, take on certain political actions. So we would go out to D.C. Um, we started traveling to D.C. around 2010 in the spring um, and then we would do that pretty much every single year uh, talking to members of Congress, so both my representatives and people representing districts in other parts of the country about the impact that particular pieces of legislation um, that were coming off of Obamacare, the ACA, uh, and other sort of like funding projects through the National Institute of Health and other uh, research organizations relating to this rare class of disorders to just uh, talk to legislature, legislators and um, tell them about my experiences and how these research projects help people like me um, to just sort of put a face to this name or these other groups that are going in um, and talking about these issues and trying to get these pieces of legislation passed. That's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that um, extent. And do you think that involvement, the grassroots involvement, would have a bigger impact than, say, um, if somebody, like a political candidate who was representing you, was just to advocate for it? Um, yeah, I do think so. So it's, it's nice being able to sort of really, like I said, put that face um, to the name of a disorder and actually get a story about you know, a person's day-to-day -day life. Um, the you know small in and outs of politics that are you know very consequential for people's day to day lives um, are really important. I think they can be highlighted there by those types of interactions between constituents and their representatives. Absolutely. Um, so recently, we have seen um, a lot of media coverage of grassroots campaigns. Yeah. One of the most famous being that of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Yeah. Um, why do you think people are so drawn to her story and the story of other grassroots candidates. Right. Um, I think this, the, the campaign that we're talking about in particular, is very interesting. It's kind of unique. Um, so AOC defeated Joe Crowley, who had been serving in Congress um, for quite a long time before that, actually. Um, however, uh, 
Well, to the extent that Crowley was representing the constituents of that 14th district in New York, um, he certainly was uh, doing substantive representation in that he was voting the way that these constituents um, would be voting. So, you know, he was a Democrat representing a very liberal district. Um, but to the extent that he actually looked like his constituents, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was able to come in and offer these these people a descriptive representation. She looked more like them. Um, that district, I believe, is less than 20% white people um, in its composition. And so, so for ALC to come in um, and bring that, that, um, that experience to the position offers her constituents a little bit better representation. So I think that's one way that that campaign was able to really make its way off the ground. Absolutely. And so do you think what we can learn from that is the importance of feeling represented not just in the way policies go but in identity yeah definitely well and I think those two things interact so okay. um, you know when you when you when you bring those identities to the table that's definitely forming um, or helping to shape your political attitudes and so ultimately turning that into behavior thinking about um, voting in elections um, yeah certainly those two things are coming together um, also in national media has been, uh, as we see the um, Democratic primary candidates um, progress, we've seen a couple who have implemented strategies that are used more commonly for um, grassroots candidates. So we've seen um, Representative um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both change from being political rallies into um, town halls. What do you think they're tapping into that grassroots campaigns can offer? Yeah, so I, I think that um, that aspect of grassroots campaigns and um, bringing people uh, into contact with these policies that are um, very controversial and you know very meaningful to people um, at at um, uh, town halls as opposed to just rallies. Uh, these politicians are able to actually hear from the people and sort of interact with them on a more personal level. And obviously people like that. Um, they like being uh, involved in the process and having their concerns taken seriously. Um, but, you know, Bernie really is coming off of, like, a major sort of shift in 2016 to this idea of not taking money from um, PACs and really uh, seeing the campaign as something that's driven by the people and driven from the bottom. Um, and so I think that really this this uh, much bigger trend of uh, grassroots campaigning sort of makes its way out of that. Really, if we think about 2020, there aren't a lot of candidates who are um, on the in the Democratic field uh, who are taking money from PACs. They're you know, labeling their campaigns as being grassroots because um, this effect is something that is is very helpful to them. They want their uh, they want the people who um, will eventually vote for them to think that they're a part of the process and that they matter in the campaign. So, do you think um, this idea of representation and transparency is something new? Um, like, do you think this is coming out of a state of disillusionment, or do you think it's always been there, but we've we're just now seeing a resurgence or a popularity in it? Yeah, it's certainly always been there. Actually, when you emailed me to talk about grassroots campaigns in the first place, um, it was kind of interesting. Usually when we talk about the word grassroots in politics, um, at least when I'm like teaching in Intro to American Politics, uh, we, we talk about it more in the lobbying sense. But um, as we've seen, like I said, the Sanders 2016 campaign and then other um, 
consequential campaigns like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's yeah. 2018 House race, um, these these campaigns have become more popular, and as they gain more media attention, um, other candidates in the field want to follow that. So um, to that extent, a lot of these campaigns have always been driven by people at the bottom. Um, when I was in college, you know, working on uh, House of Representatives campaigns and governor's campaigns, um, it was mostly college students who were actually doing the organizing and going and uh, doing the door knocking constituents as well, um, not just college students. But um, yeah, to that extent, like people want to be a part of the process and people have always sort of been a part of the process. I think it's that campaigns want that label as well. They want that grassroots label um, because it just makes everyone feel a little bit better about that campaign, especially on the left, um, as you know, campaigns have started to um, move further and further on issues um, away from you know the center. So, do you think going off of that, what do you think? these grassroots campaigns can do to the political party as a whole, even if we don't see representatives or candidates winning, do you think there is a broader impact from um, policies that differentiate from the, the center? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think on the Democratic side especially, um, you're seeing a lot of these campaigns start to shift to a place where they're not taking um, PAC money, like I said earlier. and. Um, you know that's that's really huge and that they're only taking donations from individuals um, well from the party consensus I'm not um, particularly sure I will say that uh, they can certainly change the way that these parties frame um, candidates and campaigns um, I don't think that fundamentally you know grassroots campaigns um, as a type is going to shift the like fundamental positions of Democrats or Republicans, um, but in the ways that they portray themselves to their constituents, uh, really to the rest of the country, um, certainly they can do uh, things to shape the psychological processes that are happening when um, people in the public are taking these campaigns and their information in. Okay, so if I'm getting this correctly, they have a broader impact on um, the structure of campaigns rather than the policies? Um, yeah, the structures and sort of the, the impact or the way that these campaigns are actually driven home in people's hearts and minds. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so what do you think these campaigns can offer that others cannot? Um, I mean, I think it just offers this very valuable perspective. So. Um, <laughs> When people are, or when representatives are able to, you know, meet people um, in their offices and hear their stories, or when their staffs are able to, because that's that's another aspect of this. Uh, when we think about grassroots lobbying, um, a representative only has you know 24 hours in the day, just mm -hmm. like all of us do, and a lot of that time is eaten up by um, other higher level meetings and committee meetings, and actually uh, getting onto the floor to make votes. So. Um, lots of times staffs, uh, staff members are, are meeting with these constituents and then uh, relaying their um, stories and concerns to the representative and the other staff members who are working on policy matters. Okay, yeah. Um, so going forward, how do you think people can get more involved in causes that matter to themselves um, that might have a grassroots base or just in general? Yeah, definitely. Um, if you have, uh, if you identify as a Democrat or Republican, um, you can reach out to your local uh, party unit. So um, 
uh, if you're in Denver, um, I'm sure that there are local offices in that city. I know there are uh, as well in Boulder County. So um, if, if you're interested in really getting on a campaign, that's one place to start, um, certainly. But uh, also contacting candidates. So thinking about this most, uh, or this upcoming election cycle, a lot of the uh, elections are happening at the local level. So uh, going on Facebook and looking at who's running for office, um, reaching out to their campaigns and seeing what you can do, these are all great ways to get involved in the political process. Absolutely. Um, so just closing us out, you are listening to Radio 1190's News Underground. We are joined tonight by Alexander Jensen, a doctorate candidate here at CU. Um, Alex, do you have any parting words or thoughts that you want to leave with audience? So on top of uh, my interest in parties and elections, um, I am also interested in the First Amendment, and I'm actually the graduate student fellow for the Leroy Keller Center for the first uh, the study Oh, wow. <laughs> the Leroy Keller Center for the Study of the First Amendment here uh, at CU. And we have um, a slate of events coming up in the uh, coming semesters. Uh, you can find more information about that at colorado.eu forward slash Keller. Thank you. So that was Alexander Jensen. He is a doctorate candidate here at CU, and he was giving us some background info on grassroots campaigns, um, and he was kind of giving us some background for uh, our next guest, who is Julie Banuelos, and she is running for Denver's District 5 school board position. Julie is a grassroots candidate um, who was born and raised in the district, District 5, um, which is North Denver. Julie, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah. So, um, first of all, thanks for having me, inviting me to be here um, on the news radio, on the college news radio. Um, so, my name is Julie Bañuelos. I am running for district DPS District Five, and um, I am a former teacher of sixteen years. I did spend eleven years of those sixteen teaching in District Five, and that's how I know Clara. Um, I taught at Academia Sandoval and then I taught at Centennial. And for me, um, it's important that we start really valuing our teachers and um, our educators in DPS. We need to pay them a livable wage. We need to make sure that um, we are, that I plan on re-envisioning what safety means. That's, that includes expanding uh, mental health services, allowing, um, having full-time nurses, um, social workers, psychologists, uh, really providing, implementing um, comprehensive restorative justice practices in the schools. And that also includes um, hiring more uh, school counselors because I don't know if you know, we have a, a large disparity when it comes to school counselors in middle school and high school. And then finally, we need to ensure that um, the DPS is um, giving everyone a very transparent uh, budget because taxpayers pay 62% of property taxes uh, towards schools and of course we've had several approvals of bond and mill levies so this the district is getting a lot of money and we need to hold them accountable to find out where that money is going we have um, administration that keeps uh, ballooning and yet we're not getting that money directly into the classroom and for me this is 
very important. I am a grassroots campaign. I'm relying on a lot of volunteers and donations from regular people, regular people who believe in public education in Denver. So Julie, you yourself are, as you say, a regular person who believes in public education. So I imagine the decision to run for school board came from somewhere. Can you describe what brought you here and what really motivated you to run for District 5? Sure. So um, during the course of my 16 years with DPS, I witnessed a very huge change in the governance models that were implemented in DPS. Um, what happened is DPS used to have a lot of control over schools and over monitored for everything from budgeting to instructional curriculum to disciplinary practices and everything that was implemented at the public school level, especially neighborhoods. Neighborhood schools is really what we knew. Um, but since then, we've um, the district with the last two superintendents that were very, very business oriented implemented free market strategies to um, sort of under the illusion that parents um, could choice into schools that were successful. And so when we have these free market strategies that include competition based on school performance framework and with other models of gauging what type of schools we have, um, there will always be winners and losers based on that model. And um, what I've seen that for the sake of encouraging parents to choose, there was this almost sense of flight, white flight out of our neighborhood schools. And um, everyone was it has been vying to attend these high quality schools, so-called high quality schools based on this SPF. Um, and so they've done it with decreasing um, the power of the school, the Denver Classroom Teacher Association, the union. So they pushed out experienced teachers and hired um, young teachers that haven't been so experienced, that have gotten training for six years, that believe in no-nonsense disciplinary practices. So that particular um, component of hiring cheap labor or cheaper labor for the sake of training these young teachers to do a toe the line has caused some serious issues at the level of neighborhood schools where we don't have um we have so many parents traversing the city of denver to get into these so-called high quality schools which have been charter schools in other words schools that have a different governance model and aren't monitored by the district and so that has caused some serious um, implications. So a little context, um, District 5 or North Denver has undergone, it's where I grew up, it's undergone a lot of recent gentrification and change in the past 10 or 15 years. Julie, do you think as a grassroots candidate you represent a dying perspective there or do you think you represent a perspective that needs more attention? 
That's a great question uh, because when we think of traditional schools, it's not an issue of going backwards. And I want to make sure that I emphasize neighborhood schools, right? I don't want to go step backwards. I want to be able to emphasize that everyone's first choice when it comes to attending a public school is their neighborhood school. So if we are to have wonderful neighborhood schools for our kids and parents who live in the neighborhood and, ha and are able to have hopefully a very diverse group of students, I think that's the first choice. We need to make sure that we're hiring full-time um, and experienced teachers, that we have leaders that reflect the demographics of the community where the school is, um, that we include comprehensive um, subjects, if that's music, art, PE, or dance, um, we need to have those. I know that there are particular schools that have been created by communities, and Academias Ana Marie Sandoval is one of those schools that came out of community. It is a magnet school, or I should say, yes, it's a magnet school, so people have to choice in, but see the, the important part, or the interesting part of Sandoval is that you, ha you will learn how to read, write, and um, speak Spanish. So there has to be a lot of buy-in, but the fact that this is community, it really creates a different model, and people support it, and, um, and that's what makes schools, I think, successful and appealing gentrification came along because of the economic boom but everybody has wanted to go to sandoval or any of the other schools that are magnet edison is a magnet school as well for the gifted and talented and so um our former superintendents along with the mayors have really made it um favorable to those who have while the ones that have not have been displaced and moved out. So that is how they're killing a very diverse city, right? By m pushing out just or the regular working class um, and, and students who want to attend a neighborhood school. So from a grassroots perspective, do you think you are really latching on to the uh, the community that may be displaced, that may be pushed out, that may be sent to the margins? Yes, I, I believe that in my heart, um, because DPS has a demographic that is around 70% uh, Latinx students and black students, they're the majority in DPS. So the majority should have a voice and that hasn't been the case. We have been um, given uh, talk to and expected to follow or to buy into these marketing ploys that they have and support DPS while they DPS has spent millions in their marketing department to appeal to our community while hurting our community with disciplinary practices not following the consent decree for English language learners um, they've even handcuffed uh, little kids, right? Seven-year-olds, the majority of the children that get handcuffed are black males in middle school. So these policies are very, very hurtful to our, our large demographic. So I am, in that sense, a voice for those who are marginalized. Um, majority, uh, obviously, are, are students of color and their families and our working class. So in that sense, that's who I am reaching out to. 
So moving a step back, you, uh, as a grassroots candidate, a lot of national candidates are tapping into the appeal that grassroots candidates give. Um, namely, we've gotten a lot of press around candidates like Ale Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and uh, larger candidates who are not truly grassroots have sort of emanated some of the techniques of grassroots campaigns. What do you think they are tapping into? What do you think is the popularity and the appeal of a grassroots candidate and campaign like yours? Yeah, um, so right, the, the, the mainstream candidate, right, that, that started off as grassroots and now has elevated um, is AOC, who was here this weekend, right? Um, so two years ago, I ran at large, and we were definitely grassroots. We had um, by far the highest... Um, number of donors uh, for a campaign. We garnered 30, almost 30,000 votes for having a no name. So I believe it's the values that we hold, right? To, to really, instead of having the top down sort of um, campaign model, it's the bottom up. And so Obviously, everyone is jumping on the bandwagon, realizing that that makes a difference. I mean, Bernie Sanders is known was known for for doing the twenty five or was it five dollars um, the ask. He was obviously a very grassroots um, uh, candidate in that sense. So um, now we're seeing that change in wave and I think our voters need to discern who truly is a grassroots are these people really doing the work at the at the level where we connect with community where I, and instead of just hearing those sound bites that that are very similar and you got to distinguish where's your money coming from who are these people because there's a lot of big corporations obviously you know we know the Walmart um, the Walmart kids and the Koch brothers are influencing our elections and they influence our DPS elections as well. Now, we've, we haven't raised all the big money that some of these big candidates are going to get, still get. You'll, you'll notice in October there'll be a lot of independent expenditure committees that are giving money on their behalf. We're not going to be getting that. Obviously, that is a, a big key in differentiating a grassroots from somebody who wants to appear as grassroots. That is a great distinction to make. How would you suggest people go about uh, generating a grass move, grassroots movement? Um, and I guess maybe you've obviously had a lot of personal experience with that because you came from your experience as an educator and a community member to going to being a politician. How do you think people can get involved or support causes that really matter to them? I think the first thing is definitely keeping a pulse on your community, right? And understanding, and I think our young people can distinguish what is, they have a better moral compass when it comes to politics now. They know what's right for everyone because our young people now are having to face issues related to um, very oppressive systems, right? Not just at the national level, but even at the 
individual level when you go college right how much college costs for us for me it's been i always had the pulse on education dps education it's get involved i think particular groups that are really helpful in keeping you informed and getting grassroots experience and connections and being involved is ds denver the Denver Democratic Socialists of America, and I believe Boulder has a, a great group as well. I know a few people that are part of that group. I think that that's where you we need to start. But also, if you're going to fight for particular um, things, like we see immigration, right, and um, the caging of children, if you're going to get involved in that, you need to, to show up and verse yourself and also um, make sure that you're that, we're, that our young people understand that we need white allies for sure, but we need our white allies to also understand what privilege is, to understand their own biases in order to create um, growth individually and then connect more with their communities. But uh, I think that's how people can get involved. And, and of course, you're in a great place where you're learning a lot here in CU, and I think just keeping activated academically and, and then socially and on the large scale because... You know, we have a big election in 2020, and we need to all get on the same page of fighting and standing up with each other because there's so many protests taking place, right? And we need to all help each other in that area. So as kind of a final question, I know grassroots candidates typically represent uh, a position that's farther from the center than most other candidates. Do you think that is something that's do you think that is a, a, a criticism that people will not get elected because of that or do you think it's a, a position that's needed to bring to light issues and push specific perspectives yeah you know um, right now for me personally I'm unapologet unapologetically left and radical in that sense because we don't need any more incremental change we don't need moderate change and you've seen that right and if we put candidates that are actually going to be radical and actually make change then our voters our constituents will vote for us but we're contending with getting our message out we're contending with with people who are centrists who are moderate, who are who don't like the idea of our us going more left. So they create barriers for us. I think for me, I am I'm I'm fighting for our kids. I'm fighting for our educators who are not able to live. I'm fighting for our community. And I think that those things, if they're saying I'm too radical on that, then that's on them. I'm not gonna waffle because we've had a lot of politicians come into our communities who promise us things and then don't follow through. And it's all just to get your vote and pandering for our vote. And that's not what I'm doing. This is who I am. And if people don't like me, that's on them. I'm here because I have the direct experience. And I and we need somebody we can count on, right? So we're just going to wrap up tonight. That was Julie Bonuelos. She is a grassroots candidate in Denver's District 5 running for school board. Um, thank you for joining us tonight, Julie. You got it. Thank you.